Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Is your smartphone changing you? We all want to focus on what is truly important as we strive to be saints, but how can we do that when our attention is being manipulated constantly, even in subtle ways that we might not even realize, and we are constantly bombarded by distractions. Dr. Joshua Hochschild is a professor and director of philosophy, politics, and economics at Mount St. Mary's, former atheist, also Catholic convert. And he will be with us later on the show to talk about not only neuroscience and the science behind technology and the algorithms, but how it impacts us on a metaphysical level, our souls. He is the co-author of the book, A Mind at Peace, Reclaiming an Ordered Soul in an Age of Distraction. Cannot wait to spend time with Dr. Hochschild. That is on the way here on Trending. Welcome to the show. My name is Brooke Taylor, in for Timory. Always grateful to be with you here on this Feast of St. Faustina. When you think of this beautiful Polish saint, the Secretary of Mercy, when you think of relevant radio, I automatically link Drew Mariani, and he has been a true ambassador, a deputy of the Divine Mercy Devotion, praying the chaplet every day, faithfully for years, documenting miracles. And we are all a witness to that as we hear on the radio or we see on Twitter and propagating the devotion as well as the life and the writings of St. Faustina Maria Kowalska. So a surprise guest as we begin the show today, a treat for us here on Trending to have an extra helping of Drew Mariani on the special feast day. Welcome to Trending, Drew. Well, Brooke, it's great to be with you. I love that. An extra helping of Drew. <laughs> That's <laughs> really a pretty appreciate big portion. That. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are the best I could think of, you know, to have on right away because I hear every day people around the world praying the chaplet. And I'm curious, I guess, how that got started because perhaps from a programming perspective, maybe yeah. when you first felt called to pray the chaplet on the air every day, coast to coast, it might not look like a popular choice programming or ratings wise, but it was the faithful choice. And boy, has it yeah, flourished. So true. It's really true. You know, God, I believe saints choose us. And I tend to believe that St. Faustina chose me for this particular mission. I was introduced to her back in the 19, early 1990s when I was a documentary filmmaker. And I was hired to produce a film on her life. And I attended her beatification. And that was the introduction into Divine Mercy. And I fell in love with it. You know, she was soon there canonized. And God changed my career, brought me into the world of talk radio. And uh, it was part of another national network, Brick, that rose for a couple years. It was coast to coast. And then it fell. And I never thought we'd see Catholic radio again. So Relevant Radio comes, they hire me. And I'm thinking, gosh, this entity, I hope they're not going to go down the same path. And I went to the owner, the, not the owner, but the founder of the, the network. And I said to him, I said, look, 
if we really want God's blessing, if we want this apostolate to prosper, then we should be spreading the message of divine mercy. Uh, Our Lord told St. Faustina, he says that he would uh, protect and bless anyone who promotes the message of mercy like a tender mother, her child. And that in the afterlife, you would shine with a special brilliance. I said, we'll have the divine protection that comes with this, and I guarantee you we'll have the graces that we need as an early apostle. And we went through rough times at Relevant Radio. We almost didn't get out of the dock, so to speak. We're, we're sailing on the high seas right now, but, you know, this was an apostle that was taking on a lot of water, and we weren't sure we were going to make it. We began to pray the chaplet, and, you know, I prayed it every day and thought, well, you know, we're going to pre-record it. So the chaplet was pre-recorded. It was maybe 10 minutes long. And at 3 o'clock, it would run, and while it was running, I would go get a cup of coffee or look at my notes for my next segment or talk to my producer or do whatever because, you know, I don't pray to something that's pre-recorded. I don't pray to something that was wrote. And um, after this has gone on for a long way, because I like to pray from my heart. I'm sure you do, too. That's really where the power is, when you pray from deep within your soul. So what ended up happening was uh, my chief programming officer comes into the studio one day, he says, look, we got to talk about this chaplet. He says, and Drew, when you're on, the numbers are great. The second we go to this pre-record, the numbers, they drop, you know, and it's just, we, we got to get rid of it. And as a broadcaster, uh, he was right. I, and I knew that, you know, intellectually, I was like, you know, it's, it's, it's just bad radio. You know, I, I'm not even praying it. So why should I expect anyone else to? So Father Rocky, uh, Mike Kendall, and myself, we all sat around a, a board, a conference room table in a boardroom. And we threw out ideas. And somebody says, well, why don't you throw out, why don't you put prayer petitions at the very head end of this? And I said, well, you know, there's an apostle in Philadelphia that used to do that, but then it goes back into becoming a rope prayer. And we decided to go ahead and to say, you know what, let's just take petitions in between each segment. And we began to do that, and the prayer changed. It became very interactive. Uh, I could feel the power of the Holy Spirit in a very tangible way. Uh, in that in that chapel as I began to pray. And all of a sudden, we began to hear of unbelievable miracles taking place. Well, they looked at the numbers, and what ended up happening, we went from being the lowest rated hour, that 3 o'clock was probably the lowest rated hour on the entire network, to being like a skyscraper towering over the rest of the programming day. And it was God's way of blessing. And even today, uh, you know, we, we stopped for 30 minutes. It's unheard of. And we pray coast to coast and literally around the world. We have people from Africa and Asia and Europe that join us in that prayer. And God's been blessing it, and he'll continue to bless it. So I would encourage anyone, if you're new to Divine Mercy, uh, learn a little bit more about it and, and make this part of your prayer life. There's power and there are promises associated with the chaplet. And this is really the devotion, the revelation, I think, for our day. I pray the rosary and I pray the chaplet every day, of course, attend mass, but those are the two weapons that I hold in each hand. Well, and I think that, you you know, there's a beauty in blending the contemplative with the collective because it's this living chaplet. We feel it as you talked about wanting to pray from your heart, praying live, praying together. So it's one of my favorite things to hear as a listener when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're carrying the heaviness of life, and you turn on the chaplet and without fail are reminded of how powerful the prayer is, the promises that Jesus made to St. Faustina, to the souls who trust in divine mercy, and documented real-life miracles every day. And I want to ask you about that, and I want to maybe touch on that and and ask you to think about that. And then as we wrap up with you, you can share a few stories that have stayed with you of the miracles that 
you've experienced other people share with you through the chaplet over the years. But I also just want to share a little bit about St. Faustina. We've been talking about her all day. Kale did a beautiful job talking about her visions. So you being introduced to her, being at her beatification and just being swept away with the spirituality, we know that she was born the third daughter of Mariana and and Stanislaw Kowalska, 8 a.m. in the morning, August 25th, 1905 in Poland. And, I, you know, she's such a saint for our times because the family she was born into, it is a family of simplicity. They embraced simplicity. They were poor in possessions, but rich in faith. They had, even though a very small home and many of the children and shared a bed, they had a home altar. And so they would kneel every night and pray. And they had two clay statues of one Jesus, one Mary, that they purchased from Yasnagora Monastery in Chestahova. And so there is simplicity. There is trust. I think there lies the seed in why she resonates so strongly with our culture, why this is the spirituality of our times. Why do you think the Divine Mercy devotion, the image, the prayer, the chaplet is such a powerful vehicle to take us to our Lord right here and now. It's a great question. Um, it is uh, uh, the vice postulator for canonization. Uh, he's now deceased. His name was Father Serpent Michelanco. He said that this is the fastest grassroots movement in the history of the church. So there's something, uh, anoint- uh, something anointed uh, about the devotion. I think God wants it. And I think that's one of the reasons there's a superabundance of grace that's flowing right now. As you point out, he's given us these different channels of grace through this apostle of mercy. He called St. Faustina the secretary uh, of his mercy. He said, in the Old Testament, I sent uh, you know prophets wielding thunderbolts, but today I send you, referring to St. Faustina, with my message of mercy. He says, I don't want to punish the world, but I want to press them to my merciful heart. And that's what we need today. We have really straight, I, I heard either Patrick Madrid or Father Simon the other day, they were talking about uh, justice, and they made a great comment. They said, justice is what you deserve. Mercy is what you don't deserve. And, and you know, so often we look at people who don't deserve mercy, and, and yet that's what makes God's act of mercy so, so beautiful. I think we need mercy in the world today, Brooke. I mean, as you know, and we can go through the litany of problems that threaten the world today. You know, there's attacks on life and on marriage and on gender and on, on everything right now. Mercy is the solution because the Lord told Faustina, he says, you know, the world will have no peace until it turns with trust to my mercy. So this is really a devotion for our time. These other gifts, the image of divine mercy, there's many promises of protection that come with it, the chaplet, we've seen the fruit of that and the promises associated with that, the hour of mercy, the Lord asks us to reflect on the feast of mercy, one of my favorite days uh, uh, on the church calendar, where torrents of grace, the floodgates of God's mercy are open. These are all extraordinary channels in which we can tap into the grace of God, and it brings about healing and conversion. This this devotion is saving lives on their deathbed, and it's transforming. Anyone who comes into contact with it, I don't know what your backstory is with Divine Mercy, but whoever encounters it, uh, they're they're smitten by it, they're attracted to it, and it has transformed more lives than than anything I know. So. I'm just glad St. Faustina um, responded to the Lord's call. I'm glad her parents eventually supported her in it. And I'm just so grateful for John Paul II initiating the overturn of the ban and for what we have today because we need it more than ever. We do. And you said you said the word trust. And I think when you enumerated all the ailments of our society, all the ills that we're seeing and the 
words, Jesus, I trust in you. You know, you wake up in the morning, you praise God for life and the blessing of a new day, and then you turn the news on and it's like our trust goes way down. And just the idea to go back to that image, to contemplate the rays and the promises and the phrase, Jesus, I trust in you. And, and, And my story is very much like a friend, you had shared how saints choose us. And that absolutely is true. Our daughter is adopted from Poland in an orphanage in Czestochowa. And during that process and the long wait and the unknowns, and at that point in my life, I was doing a morning show, waking up at two in the morning. And so I would get up and always I was in a hurry, always in a hurry. Most days I'm still in a hurry, but in the morning at that time, I would wake up and I would kneel in our family kneeler before the crucifix. And every morning I would pick up the diary and I would spend time with my friend, Faustina, and I would spend time with our Lord realizing that, you know, just because I'm kneeling and I'm not on the go doesn't mean that I'm not being productive. It was the most productive time to revisit the words of our Lord and to stop and pray and that mission. And that got me through when we didn't know who our daughter would be or where she would be. And then later on, I would go on to have an extraordinary miracle. Had I not lived through it myself, I wouldn't have believed it. And then not knowing when we did eventually adopt our daughter, that she would be diagnosed with some pretty severe disabilities. But there were so much, there were so much consolation from that time that remains. And all of the annotated dog-eared pages, you know, Jesus in the diary, he told St. Faustina, do as much as is in your power and don't worry about the rest. These difficulties prove that this work is mine. And I think for anyone who struggles with control, you read the diary and you realize it doesn't matter if I'm a perfect saint or I'm the worst sinner. Our Lord's mercy will engulf us in his ocean of mercy and goodness. And just to lay my my head on his chest like a dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. And how long ago was it? How many years ago is this now? Well, she's 12 and she oh, spent wow. the first year, she spent the first year in her or, in, in the orphanage. So we picked her wow. up when she was 11 months old. And of all the places in the world, it was just oh, blocks away from Yasnagora. So, you know, in, in her name, you know, there's a big connection between St. Faustina as well as John Paul II. Her name yeah. is Carolina, which is the feminine of Carol. So there's so many connections there and in the idea of the beauty of prayer and that God is on the move and he's still working miracles. And so I guess as we wrap up, if you could maybe, we could go back to that, share a few that have impacted you most from the daily chaplet and the souls that you hear from every day. Yeah. And I would encourage anyone who um, is new to the devotion, again, learn more about it. Join me every afternoon at 3 Central for the chaplet. It's just one small aspect of a devotion. I was once told that divine mercy is not a devotion. It really is a way of life. And I think that is so true. Uh, it really is. And we could talk much more about that. But the, the chaplet, you know, I, I think God allows sometimes, Brooke, um, he allows those of us who have weak faith to see things that defy the laws of nature. God is above the laws of nature. He created them. And because he's above them, he can suspend those laws. And that's why we see things like Miracles happen. Like, like uh, there have been testimonies. Of one woman who was praying in the chapel with me was bent over her sink, and she had osteoporosis. Her really was in a lot of agony and discomfort, and it was degenerative. And somebody called him with that intention, and we asked God to heal and claim that healing. And she said she felt a warm, 
vi- uh, just a heat penetrate her spine. She said it just ran mm-hmm. from the top, back of her neck, all the way down to, to her coxbone. And, and next thing you know, she stood up straight, and then she dropped to her knees. Thank God. She went to the doctors. The doctors had no explanation for it. You know, there have been brain tumors. There's been osteoporosis that's disappeared. There are people facing crushing financial problems or impossible legal situations that have been miraculously resolved. Uh, I hear a lot on the chapel about about organ transplants, people who need vital organs, and either the transplant is no longer needed or they get the, the, the organ that they need it. There was one story of a person who needed a double organ transplant. They were really in a bad way, and the diagnosis didn't look good. Uh, joined us for the chaplet. They were completely healed. Two days, later, they, two days later, they left the hospital, no longer needing it. Marriages that seem doomed have been reconciled. Eye problems have been healed. Infertility, we hear about that. Women contemplating abortion choose life. And the big ones, of course, are, are cancer uh, being vanquished. So many people struggle with that. There's an email that I have here. Somebody said, you know, uh, they said, uh, you know, today I, I, I called and, and began the phone conversation by saying, with joy, Drew, uh, that God has, has healed me. I went in for a routine CT scan and was told after I had been diagnosed with a tumor the size of a grapefruit that there is no cancer. The doctor said, he has no explanation for this. It has completely disappeared. He says, I'm, I'm ecstatic and I'm eternally grateful to God. During COVID, there were answers to prayers. Uh, the, the, the stories go on and on. And the promise that the Lord says, is, he, he told us that through the chaplet, you'll obtain everything if what you ask for is compatible with my will. You'll, you'll, you'll receive everything. It's diary entry 1731. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I believe personally you know, that, that if your son is addicted, you know, I think it's God's will that they want, he wants that child free from addiction. If your marriage in trouble and it's sacramental, I think God wants your marriage healed. You know, I I believe that there's so many things that God wants. We just need to pray with that faith and that trust. The Lord said, what great graces I grant to souls who pray this prayer for the very depths of my tender mercy are stirred for the sake of this prayer. And there's passage after passage after passage where he talks about the power of this particular prayer and the importance of trust and how he responds to a soul that turns to him with trust for the greater, you know, the, 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 the greater soul trusts, the more it receives. So it's a devotion for our time. It's filled with great blessings. And I'm so glad you're on the air today for Tim talking about it because I don't think we can hear enough about divine mercy. Amen. And and I think the treasury of the liturgical year and the gift of the saints, because we are reminded every day as we hear the chaplet, but also we celebrate the feast days, St. Francis of Assisi, then today, St. Faustina, that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses and their examples in the midst of trials and how St. Faustina navigated her life, her faith, and the gift that our Lord gave her in the devotion. And also, for the living saints that are among us and to be edified and reminded of that. And I just want to conclude with that. Why are you afraid to do my will? Jesus says to St. Faustina in the diary, will I not help you as I have done thus far? That reminder that great is thy faithfulness. Drew Mariani, host of the Drew Mariani Show, faithful devotee of Divine Mercy, St. Faustina, just so grateful for for your faithfulness and, and for all you do for the glory of God. Well, thank you, Brooke. I enjoyed listening to you. Keep up your, your wonderful work, and, and thanks for spending some time with me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Drew Mariani. We will take a break, and when we come back, we have a special guest, and the name of the book is A Mind at Peace, Reclaiming an Ordered 
soul in the age of distraction. Dr. Joshua Hochschild's here. My name is Brooke Taylor. In for Timur, you're listening to Trending. We'll be right back. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Persuasive technology is just sort of designed intentionally applied to the extreme where we really want to modify someone's behavior. We want them to take this action. We want them to keep doing this with their finger. You pull down and you refresh, it's going to be a new thing at the top. Pull down and refresh again, it's new. Every single time, which in psychology we call a positive intermittent reinforcement. So you don't know when you're going to get it, and you don't know if you're going to get something, which operates just like the slot machines in Vegas. It's not enough that you use the product consciously. I want to dig down deeper into the brainstem and implant inside of you an unconscious habit so that you are being programmed at a deeper level. You don't even realize it. Whew, that is a clip from The Social Dilemma. It's the docudrama looking at the impact of social media. And the voice you heard there was Tristan Harris. He's a former design ethicist for Google. Welcome back to Trending. My name is Brooke Taylor in for Timory. So a question for you. Could, could you relate to that? Is your smartphone changing you? Even if you think, no, that's not me. This next guest and the topic we are about to explore may change your mind. We're going to endeavor to just make an honest appraisal of the situation, to take a truthful inventory of our behaviors and how it not only impacts us psychologically and physically, but spiritually. This is important and not talked about enough. And we have just the man for the job. He is Dr. Joshua Hochschild, a professor of philosophy at Mount St. Mary's. And he wrote the book along with Christopher Bloom, A Mind at Peace, Reclaiming an Ordered Soul in an Age of Distraction. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hochschild. Brooke, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. You know, at the top of the break there, I just played a clip from The Social Dilemma, and I've heard you cite that in at least one of your lectures. How accurate do you find the film? It's been out for a few years now, but just in terms of explaining technology's impact on human behavior. It's a very powerful film. I I I really recommend uh, the it's a it's a documentary, but there's a dramatic element to it. Um, I think parents uh, uh, would be wise to watch it, and I think it's I think it's actually really useful to watch it with kids. I've watched it with with my younger kids, and it really helped them to think about um, the role of of digital technology in their life. Um, I will say I think the m- the documentary tries to propose solutions in the last, say, 20 or 30 minutes. And I think that's the weakest part of the documentary, but, but it, it definitely understands the problem. It, 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 very, it very, very carefully describes uh, the, the mechanics, but also in a, in a way that's a little bit surprising, um, uh, an undeniably spiritual element to the problem, the way that, as that clip uh, that you played for, um, for the for the top of this um, uh, segment, they're trying to get inside your mind. They're trying they're trying to influence. Okay, I think we lost uh, Doctor 
Hoke Shield will reconnect right when he was <laughs> framing this really powerful um, this thought about the AI algorithm and how there are behavioral um, habits that it does manipulate and almost weaponize neuroscience, our emotions, our habits. So we'll try to get him on. And, and in the meantime, I want to just touch on that film, The Social Dilemma. Again, it came out, I believe, in, in 2019 or, or 2020. And I think we have him back, Jim. Um, are we good to go? Okay. Okay, I'm glad you're here, Dr. Hochschild, because I want to pick up right where we left off, where the idea of the the algorithm, well, we have this phone, so I have a phone right next to me, and it's free. We have this notion that what we have is free. We log on, it's no cost, but really, social media is is not free at all. There is a cost. I've heard you talk about that. Can you explain that point? Yeah, there's a there's a, a saying, and it's, it's even more common now, so maybe some of your listeners have heard it, but um, when... When a product is free, then you're not the customer. Uh, you are the product. Um, social media, all, all the different kinds of social media, from the ones that are, are explicitly about communication, like Facebook or Twitter, to ones that are um, sort of self-consciously more about entertainment, um, they're free to the user because the user is providing valuable information um, that is... Um, is commodifiable by the social media company. Um, and in a, in a very simplistic sense, what they do is they sell the data um, in the form of advertising, but it's actually even more valuable than that. So they, they don't sell all that they learn about you. What they do is they develop a psychological model of who you are. They can tell what attracts you, how long, what gets your attention, how long you spend uh, doing certain things, what times of day you're more likely to be engaged in different ways. Um, and they hang on to that and, and they use that to figure out how to, to keep holding your attention and keep you, uh, keep you online as much as possible. They thrive on the energy of your attention. And here's where it gets really interesting because I heard you talk about using what we just heard there with the social dilemma, and then what you just said there, how you can infer almost that this algorithm is almost functionally demonic. And it might sound far-fetched, but when you consider it, you connect the dots, like these puzzle pieces fitting together, this brilliant parallel between C.S. Lewis and what he depicts in the screw tape letters. And, you know, that demons closely observe your psyche in order to manipulate it. Could you connect that for us and explain? I will. I will. I, I found it a very useful comparison to make. And I, I, I mean, I definitely want to clarify, I'm, it's not a conspiracy theory. I'm not claiming that uh, there are um, evil demonic people who were uh, who are behind the social media companies. Uh, we're all flawed and sinful people, and we're part of a providential plan that uh, we're, none of us is in control of. Um, but even, even giving all the benefit of the doubt to social media companies about their good intentions, what, what they have designed turns out to operate exactly the way that C.S. Lewis describes the tempting demons operating in uh, the screw tape letters. And the screw tape letters is, you know, this, this wonderful uh, classic satire. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a work of fiction that is, is uh, 
meant to suggest what it is that demons would tell each other about how to tempt human beings, how to, how to identify our weaknesses and how to lead us away from God. And so all of the advice in it is, is, is negative advice, right? You're, you, it is actually supposed to be spiritual, help, spiritually helpful for us to read this so that we can recognize the ways in which we're tempted. But the, the, the insight that Lewis brings to it is that it's not as if demons are actually trying to teach us a false doctrine. They're not trying to get us to worship Satan. They're just trying to distract us from worshiping God. Um, their, best, their best tool, their best trick is simply diverting our attention from what's most important. And they'll do that however they can. It doesn't matter what they divert it to. And, and when, you, when you realize that and you realize that um, the, the apps on our phone are designed to, to grab and hold our attention, um, you, you see a very, very close analogy to how they analyze our psyche, how they, how they develop a, a model of our soul. And like, like the demons, they, they don't actually control our will, but they learn enough about the habits of our will to, to nudge us in certain directions and to, to distract us from what would actually be healthy and good for us. And I think we know and we've heard and we realize, like, and, and to reiterate what you said, it's not your, that you're saying that all platforms are, are demonic and bad. It's morally neutral, but it's really about us taking custody of our attention and being aware so that we are not manipulated. And, and going back to that analogy, what you shared about uh, Lewis, you know, the fallen angels, the demons in the screw tape letters, they were able to observe activity eye movements, heartbeats, expression, all of the right. behavior. And so that's what that's all they needed to infer desires and to frame our decisions and to modify our behaviors. But we know as Catholics, we need to be uh, have custody. We, we value thought and reason and logic and being able to think through embracing the virtues. And I think that's really key. You say in your book, it's a mind at peace, that we really need to talk about a true ethic of attention. What does that mean, ethic of attention? Um, uh, this is a great question, and I think that that um, chapter is sort of at the, at the heart of the book. I, I, by the way, I really love the way you've put this in terms of keeping custody and at the very beginning uh, just talking about taking an honest stock of our behavior. Uh, there's a way in which I think that some of our spiritual practices need to catch up with modern patterns of life. There's all kinds of uh, classic examinations of conscience that ask people, um, you know, whether whether their behavior is conforming to uh, to holiness. But we actually need to very very intentionally ask ourselves about our use of digital media and why we're using it, how how much we're using it, what we're using it for. Um, uh, and, and what we're doing with, uh, with the rest of our time, what, what kinds of things aren't we giving attention to because we're giving our attention to screens. Uh, attention is the sort of most basic interior uh, cognitive power. I mean, we, have, we all know about sense organs and eyes and ears and you, you, you see and you listen, but those, those organs just bring in a bunch of data and, and we have some power over which of the data that comes into us uh, we prioritize, which we filter out, and how, how we choose to focus. And we all know that feeling when we've lost focus, when you feel 
distracted, dissipated, when you can't concentrate, when, when there are too many demands on you, and, and, and that can be paralyzing. Um, and, and we all intuitively know that, that things are going well when, when we feel a kind of interior temperance. I mean, temperance is usually about the exterior appetites and, and whether we're eating too much or um, indulging in too much pleasure. But there's, there are interior delights. We, we love to, to notice things. We love, you, we love to refresh the screen. We love to see new delightful images. But we need, we need a kind of interior temperance to control and focus and direct our attention to the things that are really worthwhile. Uh, there's, there's a classic virtue that I think needs to be talked about more in, in the modern age, um, the virtue of studiositas. It sounds like a kind of school virtue, like you're studying hard, but it means, it means the virtue of directing one's attention to the things that are, are best and most worthy of our attention. And the, uh, the corresponding vice, uh, when, when our attention is not directed towards good things, is called, in Latin, curiositas, Again, that's 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 a, uh, a a name that that we could have a hard time understanding what's wrong with it because we typically think of curiosity as a good thing in English, but the idea of of curiosity or curiositas um, in in the Christian spiritual tradition is that um, it is an inordinate desire to uh, satisfy our our need for a constantly refreshed attention. It, it's, it's a mind that's going from one thing to another or a mind that is going too deeply into something that is, is, is not appropriate for it and, and is distracting it from, from where its attention should go. Um, once you think about it, I think, I think most people recognize, oh yeah, I do need interior attention, but we've lost the habit of talking about it, which is why we go back to obscure Latin words, because we don't have everyday words in English to talk about um, not being distracted. What's, what's the English word for the virtue of being undistractable? I don't know, that, um, but, but it clearly is an important part of living a good life. It's so true, and I'm so glad that you brought that up, and I think also a very good point about understanding the spiritual life and, and the virtues and how we might deploy those in light of the digital age that we're living in. And I had that written down, the countermeasures. We look at sloth. The opposite virtue of sloth is diligence. And we talk about acedia. And you, I had opened up to a page that you were just talking about when you mentioned a studio's task. So I'm going to read from it. It's page 123 in A Mind at Peace. And you say, there is much at stake here. Purposefulness in our attention is intimately linked to a sense of purposefulness in our lives and restlessness, wandering or distraction, ongoing or compulsive activity without ultimate purpose. These are all manifestations of acedia, whether you procrastinate by lying on the couch or doing or and do nothing or by finding other projects to occupy you, you are suffering from acedia. And how in this digital age, we are so tempted with that. Without identifying sin with a medical condition, we can notice also that in clinical terms, one of the documented effects of digital addiction is depression. So in order to, um, to counter acedia, we should get out and do something. Yes, yes. Um, we, we do typically think of acedia or tra we often translated as sloth as not doing things. 
Um, so laziness, someone who's just lying on the couch. But there is a version of asadia where you're doing things, but you're not doing the things that are best for you. And, you, and you're really doing things to kind of um, keep yourself from doing the things that are important to you. And, you know, we all know people who, who um, you know, choose extra tasks to preoccupy themselves because they, they don't they don't want to face the big task ahead of them. Um, and yes, we, we need to take responsibility for that and, and cultivate a habit. And, and it's, it's not just a matter of willpower. You can't just decide, okay, I've had a bad habit. I'm going to decide that today I'll have the virtue. You have to practice it like all the virtues. Um, and I think it's important to frame it both in moral language and in spiritual language. The, the, um, excerpt that you read from, you know, gives, gives the evidence from psychology and it's undeniable that, um, uh, that digital technology is, is behind an increase in anxiety and an increase in depression. But often what, what, what the discipline of psychology calls um, depression and anxiety has, has deeper significance for the human soul. Often that's a manifestation of bad habits. There's a moral issue. Um, it, 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 it has spiritual implications. It might actually make it difficult for someone to pray or to be a friend. Um, and, and I think it's important that we develop a language for understanding what we're struggling with that, that makes us open to the, the, the solution, which is found in, in the Christian spiritual tradition in terms of both our working on our own habits, but also, um, being available to God's grace who, um, you know, he, he, he is ultimately the only one who can heal us from our, from our sin. And, and we, we need to make the effort to cooperate with that, but we can only do that if we are properly even understanding what it is that we are struggling with. And improperly ordered. And that's certainly not something that we're going to get from the culture at large or when we are scrolling. And I think that's where the lines are blurred because when you think about our usage, you can kind of take an inventory. Well, I listen to sacred music or I have found that in some cases being on social media has helped optimize maybe my fitness or I get great recipes or I've met wonderful Christian friends or I've learned about St. Francis de Sales or different spirituality practices and the world of information. But we have seen and, and studies bear out that we are more lonely and depressed and isolated. And so I think what it goes back to, again, as you pointed out, and I'm so glad that you use the word temperance, it's a virtue that we don't talk about enough. And it made me smile because on the way to school a few days ago, my 10-year-old son Gus and I were talking and he said, Mom, what does temperance mean again? And mm. I said, well, say at the end of the day, you're done with your homework and you want to pick up the the Switch video game. You give yourself 20 minutes and, and you have that limit for yourself where you don't binge, you give yourself a limit. But I said, you, you never hear about temperance, do you? Because of course, if you go to the restaurants or the retail stores, they, they don't want any limit. They want you to <laughs> binge and gorge and continue and spend. And so I really think we do need to talk about and practice and seek to live more temperance because the opposite virtue of temperance is gluttony. And so with gluttony, you think of a synonym binge. And yep. even if it's good, even if you are binge listening to, to sacred chant in your ear pods all day, even that 
we are called to exercise temperance and so that with moderation, it's properly ordered. And I want to just read from the catechism, the full text of what the virtue of temperance means. It says, it is the moral virtue that moderates the attraction of pleasures and provides balance in the use of created goods. It ensures the will's mastery over instincts and keeps desires within the limits of what is honorable. That is definitely one to remember <laughs> and, and print out, definite. and it can be hard. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, my name is Brooke Taylor, in for Timory. Dr. Joshua Hochschild is with us, specializing in the disciplines of philosophy, metaphysics, ethics, social thought, and the co-author of the book, A Mind at Peace, Reclaiming an Ordered Soul in the Age of Distraction. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about methods to approach the digital age with prudence and wisdom. What can we do about it? We'll be right back. You're listening to Relevant Radio. Stay with us. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. We all want to focus on what is truly important, but how can we do that when our attention is being manipulated constantly, even ever so subtly? We might not even pay attention and we are bombarded by constant distractions. That is the question our guest has studied extensively, lectured about, written about. He has some pretty powerful observations. We've been talking about the book, A Mind at Peace, Reclaiming an Ordered Soul in the Age of Distraction. And our guest today is Joshua Hochschild, Dr. Joshua Hochschild. He co-wrote that book with Christopher Bloom. And our studio lines are open, by the way, one 914 is the number to call. We would love to hear from you. And so we talked a bit about the malady and identifying some of the objectives in, in the tech world that is getting us hooked and behavior designed that changes our behavior, these algorithms that understand how to move us into a certain direction and to really constantly manipulate our time and keep us distracted. And so we, I think for a lot of us know that it's an issue or know that maybe not for everybody, for some people, they just have no issue at all. But if you're in a job, for example, where you have to share things, write things, post, check the news, whatever the case might be. For you, Dr. Hochschild, you are an academic, you're an intellectual, you're a writer. And I'm just wondering if you've been able to find a sweet spot. I did see a really good tip. I think back in 2020 that you shared about putting your phone on grayscale for Lent. I have never heard of that. I thought that was really interesting. Um, it's a very small thing, but it's it's a nice reminder that we can take little incremental steps to to sort of regain um, our our self control, um, yeah. The the self the, the the phone companies don't really want you to know how to turn their phones to grayscale. Uh, they treat it like it's a, a special, um, obscure feature, uh, mainly for for people who might have some sort of uh, vision uh, disability or something like that. Um, but but you can figure out how to do it under settings. It, it takes a six or seven steps at least uh, the last time that I, I, I did it. Um, and it, it, you know, your phone is just perfectly usable still, but what it does is suddenly it's, it doesn't have the same, um, uh, the same deep attraction to your eyes. Um, it, it's, you know, the, the brightness, the color, there's a reason why our, you know, when, when you're at a, 
at a restaurant with TVs on the wall. Why, even if you don't want to watch TV, your eyes just move there and, and, and you, you know, you find it distracting. Um, turning your phone black and white suddenly um, makes it a little bit less uh, of, a, of a powerful attractor for our attention. But there are other things you can do too. I mean, um, I, I, I think people can, can um, develop practices for their use of social media that are like the, the practices that we have during penitential seasons uh, in other regards, right? So you can you can give certain things up. You can decide that you're you're not going to post on social media for for Lent, or even just pick certain days of the week that you're you're going to refrain from doing it. Um, I know people who delete the apps from their phones uh, during penitential seasons. Um, uh, you you can choose to take up certain practices. You can you can commit to doing certain things um, instead of. Uh, the things that you 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 know would have been wasting time with on your phone, I, I think it's really important. By the way, I mean I I've, I've written a, a, a book uh, with my friend Chris Bloom um, that that is a, aspires to help people towards um, you know spiritual growth. I don't think I'm perfect on this count. Um, I I learned uh, a lot in the process of writing the book about ways that I can improve and and. Um, I, I still go back to the experience of writing the book to remind myself of things. I'm on Twitter, for instance, and I have very mixed feelings about it. I, I stay on because I, I kid myself that I can conduct uh, some of my um, some of my service as a philosopher on Twitter. But I also know that tons of time is wasted on Twitter, and there's a lot of, of uh, distraction and, and uh, garbage on Twitter as well. So um, I have to do things to remind myself why I'm there. I have to do things to step back sometimes and and decide that there will be periods of time when I'm when I'm, I'm going to give my attention elsewhere. That it's those it's those small things that we need to take responsibility for. Um, and and yeah. And I think you have such a great idea, and I, and I do that too. I tried this past Lent to delete the apps and to fast and to detox. But you have such a great point about how. There, there also are activists who say there needs to be more government oversight. They know that this is predatory and addicting. But if that's all we do, if, if say we just say, I'm going to remove my apps or there's going to be some sort of governmental control, that it's not really addressing the ethics of how to resist the power of the algorithms. And that's why I think what you write about virtue and how we are strengthened through the graces, the sacraments, and keeping focused on Christ, that that needs to be the most truly important thing. And we just have a few minutes, but I want to take a call from Didi in Phoenix, Arizona. Didi, you're on with Dr. Hochschild. Good evening. Uh, yes, doctor. Um, uh, my question is this. Is the machine now in the soul? Years ago, when I was a college student, required reading, I'm sorry, reading, was a book called The Soul and the Machine. Now, the machine is in the soul. Am I wrong? The soul? Well, okay. It is the soul and the machine. If I'm understanding your question, Didi, and I, and I might not be, um, there's a way in which we, we've started to think of the human soul as machine-like, um, as, as a, a set of mechanisms maybe that could be mimicked by, by computers and by uh, artificial intelligence. Um, I, I don't think that uh, we can artificially build a human soul. I think I actually I think that a lot of what artificial intelligence projects show us is um, that that a lot of what we call um, uh, you know the, the inner life of a human being is is impossible 
uh, to replicate. We can we can mimic it. We can we can um, fabricate certain exterior behaviors. Um, but there is a way in which uh, uh, modern computers are powerful enough to collect enough data about you that they can trick other people into simulating, you know, you and 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 your habits and and what you want to do. And I think that that just puts the burden on us to to take custody of our soul, of our will, of our intellect, and remember uh, that that it is ultimately up to us to turn. Um, our hearts and our minds to God, um, and and that it will take all of our powers to order our lives so that things don't stand in the way of that ultimate end. Hmm. Thank you, Dee Dee. And you study the discipline of metaphysics. I know that's one of your specialties. And I think about that, you know, all the companies that sell blue light glasses to help your eyes or warn of the dangers of cyberbullying, which is true, that there are physical implications of distraction, but they're in emotional, psychological, but, but also metaphysical in our soul. And so as we conclude, I just want to wrap up with a few takeaways. I think one of the most beautiful aspects of the book that you lay out is the idea of finding nobility even in small things and a life of of exemplary virtue it doesn't have to be large and grandiose but really in the little way and to keep things simple and to be attentive to be attentive to what we're doing and understand our behaviors and, and not to be so distracted. And, and that, again, it goes back to the practice of virtue. How much is kind of the little way an aspect of importance here? Oh, I, I really like that question. Um, I mean, there's a way in, in which I think it's very helpful um, to um, not be overwhelmed by the scope of the problem. Um, and and to realize yes that if, if 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 we if we are humble if we take small steps if if we seek holiness even in the smallest of things then we will be you know stronger and better prepared if if the larger if and when the larger choices come come before us uh, but if we don't attend to the small things um, if, if if our if our life is chaotic and disordered in all the small things it's very very hard for it to be right. Um, in, in the ultimate things that matter. Amen. And I want to just wrap that up there. You say the truth that we are called in every moment to serve the will of God is reassuring in its simplicity and yet imposing in its difficulty, of course, because God is is sovereign and mysterious and we have to be careful in knowing His will. But the idea that we are just called minute by minute to trust. Jesus, I trust in you as we celebrate the Feast of, of St. Faustina today. And we just have one minute, but I want to thank you so much for your time. You conclude your book with a beautiful afterword about contemplation. God wants you to have the peace of mind and His love for you. He wishes to be known by you and to claim your soul for Himself. So we praise Him and we ask Him for help. He knows what we need in strengthening us and um, and, and imbuing us with the virtues that we need. Thank you for your time, Dr. Hochschild. God bless you. Thank you for your work. The book is called A Mind at Peace. It is available from Sophia Institute Press and also Amazon. Is that right? That's right. Brooke, thank you so much. 
Thank you. Appreciate all you do. And again, it's reclaiming an ordered soul in the age of distraction, a mind at peace. The Rosary Across America with Father Rocky is next. My name is Brooke Taylor, in for Timory. God bless you. Jesus, I trust in you. St. Faustina, pray for us.